My name's Paul. I'm the chaplain and associate VP for student life here at Sterling College. Uh, today, we are doing week three of the Faith for Exiles series. Week three of the Faith for Exiles series. One uh, sermon each week um, after the first week, we've had a ser- sermon in this series. Uh, 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 Stephanie Moncada did an incredible job in the first week. Uh, my friend Pastor Caleb last week and today uh, I'm going to be preaching week three in the Faith for Exiles series. Okay, so uh, Faith for Exiles, the idea, the big idea of this series, the big idea of this series is that I think all of us want to grow in resilience. You already are resilient. I see it in you each and every day, but we can always all grow more in resilience. And this series is about that. It's about different habits and practices that we think you can use and cultivate to grow your own resilience. And so I'm excited uh, to do week three of this series today. Uh, Hopefully you're enjoying going through this teaching series. I know I really am. Well, I'd love for you all to consider a question with me this morning. I'd love for you all to consider a question with me this morning. And I'll be really honest with you, it's not the happiest of questions. But I do think that it's an important question. I do think that it's a question worthy of our consideration. So it's this. I wonder if you would consider with me the time in your life when you were most lonely. Consider with me the time in your life when you were most lonely. What moment in your life is the loneliness? What moment in your life is the loneliness? For me, my mind immediately goes back to seventh grade, which was more than a day or two for all of us, but for me, more than you. My mind immediately goes back there because there were a couple of guys that I thought were my closest friends, and then sort of out of the blue, they began to be really, really mean to me. And I had all this confusion about that, and I had all this hurt about that. And you know those moments where that confusion and that hurt that you're experiencing relationally, where it's it's sort of like... You forgot that you were boiling water and it bubbled over. You you know that? How that happens? Like it just sort of bubbled out of me one day. I wasn't really planning on doing it, but I just walked up to one of these two guys and I was like, man, what's the deal? Why have you guys all of a sudden started to be mean to me? And I, I can smile a little bit about it now, but I kid you not, I got friend dumped. Right in that moment, I got friend dumped. Like... His, 20 years later, again, I can like smile a little bit, but 20 years later, his words are still seared on my heart and on my brain. Listen, Paul, we just don't really want to be your friend anymore. You can still play basketball with us at, at recess, but we think that you probably should find somewhere else to sit at lunch. Lonely. What moment in your life is the loneliness? Listen, Chapel, friends, I want you to hear, to be human is to be lonely. To be human is to be lonely. Somewhat ironically, we're actually not alone in our loneliness. Do you know what I mean? Because to be human is to be lonely, which means that we have all experienced it, which means that even when we are lonely... We're actually not alone because it's something, it's part of the human experience. It's what, we've all navigated it. We've all gone through it. Maybe you're going through it right now. We've all been there. Maybe you are there right now. We've all cried about it. Maybe you're crying about it right now. To be human is to be lonely. And actually, this is a very old problem as well. It goes back almost to the very beginning. You see, followers of Jesus believe that the God of the Bible, Yahweh, 
He created everything in the universe. Nothing is outside of his creation control and mandate. He created everything that we can see and everything that we can't see. The seen and the unseen realms, God created it all. This is what followers of Jesus believe. And furthermore, the story of the Bible, the early pages of the story of the Bible, they, they tell this narrative. They unpack this narrative. In Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and especially in Genesis chapter 1, there is a cadence to this story. There's a rhythm to this story that you cannot miss. Here it goes. God creates something, and it's declared good. God creates something else, and it's also declared good. God creates again, guess what? It's declared good. Create, create, create. Good, good, good. You read through Genesis 1, and you cannot escape. God's creation is good. Over and over and over again, this word appears of God's creation being good. God's creation being good. So, we would be wise to pay really careful attention to the first time in the story of the Bible that something is declared not good. Because out of the gate, everything's good. Everything's good. Everything's good. What's the first time that the authors of Scripture, inspired by God, declare something to be not good? And you might think, you might think that this comes later, probably not too much later, because stuff gets bad really quickly. Sin and brokenness enter the world in Genesis 3. So you might think that the first declaration of something that is not good comes then. But it doesn't. Genesis 2 is uh, sort of a retelling. It's a different version of God's creation story. It's beautiful in its own right. And as Genesis 2 gets to the part of God creating humanity, creating us, this is what we find in Genesis 2.18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. First time that something in God's creation is declared to be not good. It is not good for the man to be alone. I don't want you to miss this. The first thing in all of God's very good creation that's declared a problem is our loneliness and our isolation. This has been something that humans have navigated literally since the very beginning. It's an old, old problem. But I do wonder if it's getting worse. I do wonder if it's getting worse. I'm convinced that our loneliness has been badly exacerbated by how online we are. I'm convinced of that. The tragic irony is that our cell phones and the social apps that we have on them, they were supposed to help with our loneliness. They were supposed to help cure this problem. They were supposed to help fix this problem. But I, I really believe in, in this area, we don't have time to like, discuss all of the pros and cons of our digital age, but in this area of our lonely journeys that all of us walk at different points, I think they've done more harm than good. I really do. And I'm not the only one to make this point. And I'm not the only one. I'm not like people have been making this point for a while. Back in 2012, this is almost a decade ago, coming up on 10 years. There's an author by the name of Stephen Marsh who wrote a fascinating article called Is Facebook Making Us Lonely? And you can tell that it's dated because in the article he talks about the Facebook wall. Like, right? Like, you know, it's like it's super dated because it's it just how quickly it changes. But listen to what doesn't change. Listen to this quote. We're living in an isolation that would have been unimaginable to our ancestors, and yet we have never been more accessible. 
Over the past three decades, technology has delivered to us a world in which we need not be out of contact for a fraction of a moment. Yet within this world of instant and absolute communication, unbounded by limits of time or space, we suffer from unprecedented alienation. We have never been more detached from one another or lonelier. In a world consumed by ever more novel modes of socializing, he didn't even know what he was predicting. He had no idea about Vine and Twitter and Instagram. He had no idea about TikTok and Snapchat. He had no idea what he was predicting. But in a world consumed by ever more novel modes of socializing, we have less and less actual society. We live in an accelerating contradiction. The more connected we become, the lonelier we are. We were promised a global village. That was the promise of the internet. A global village. And I, I'm not like anti-internet, right? But that was the promise of the internet, was a global village. What does he say? Instead, we have it the drab cul-de-sacs and endless freeways of a vast suburb of information. Later on in the article, near the conclusion, he writes this. What Facebook has revealed about human nature, and I don't believe he's a follower of Jesus, but it's just fascinating to me what he's observing here. What Facebook has revealed about human nature, and this is not a minor revelation, is that a connection is not the same thing as a bond. A connection is not the same thing as a bond, and that instant and total connection is no salvation. It's no ticket to a happier, better world or a more liberated version of humanity. Listen, here's the bottom line. You can't do life alone. You cannot do life alone. You can't do life alone. And maybe you hear this, maybe you see this, and you kind of like roll your eyes a little bit. And I get it because in some ways this is an incredibly self-evident phrase, right? Like right from the very beginning, we can't do life alone because... Like, our mom had to give birth to us, and the doctor had to help her, right? So in some ways, this is a self-evident phrase. But in other ways, don't we so often forget this and try to go it on our own? One more quote from Marsh. Today, the one common feature in American, American secular culture is its celebration of the self that breaks away from the constrictions of the family and the state, and in its greatest expressions, from all limits entirely. Next slide. The great American poem is Whitman's Song of Myself. The great American essay is Emerson's Self-Reliance. The great American novel is Melville's Moby Dick. The tale of a man on a quest so lonely that it is incomprehensible to those around him. American culture, high and low, is about self-expression and personal authenticity. Franklin Delano Roosevelt called individualism the great watchword of the American life. I think Marsh is onto something here. Baked into the cake of the American ethos is a relentless pursuit of our individual selves. You do you, as the saying goes. But you do you is a pretty lonely journey, isn't it? And listen, it's not, it's actually not just technology here. There's a myriad of factors that play into this. Like, for instance, since March of 2020. We've all been trying to social distance from each other, right? Like that's another factor even more recently than the advent of Facebook and other social mediums. We've been navigating this COVID-19 pandemic together. 
beyond the stay-at-home orders that we were all under last year, 18 months ago, I know, I know that so many of you have spent 10 to 14 days in isolation or quarantine. Some of you like way more than one time, right? Like you've been there. You know this lonely journey that we've all been on even just this past 18 months. Already there's been a myriad of academic articles that have been written about the impact of COVID-19 on our loneliness. Here's just one quote from one. People are forced to stay at home and are burdened with the heft of quarantine. Individuals are waking up every day wrapped in a freezing cauldron of social isolation, sheer boredom, and a penetrating feeling of loneliness. A freezing cauldron of penetrating loneliness. That just about sums it up, doesn't it? Truly, we can't do life alone. You can't do life alone. I can't do life alone. We can't do life alone. So why not give the church a try? Why not give the church a chance? We can't do life alone. You can't do life alone. So why not give the church a chance? Now stick with me on this. Because I know the reasons. Maybe even better than you. Because I'm a pastor of a church. And I have been for a long time. I know the reasons why you might not want to give church a chance. I really do. And I've actually been thinking a lot about those reasons that Pastor Stephen brought up in last Friday's incredible chapel sermon. I love that he brought these ideas to us. He shared a message, preached a message from 1 Samuel 31, and he talked about three reasons that we might be tempted to, or three reasons why we may have already given up on church. Here they are again. He talked about these. He said, reason one, leaders fail. Maybe you've had a pastor that has failed you, or another Christian leader that you trusted, that invested in you and then let you down. They weren't who they said they were. They were incredible hypocrites. Leaders fail. That's a, actually a good reason that you would have some mistrust towards the church. Or maybe it's been the people of a church. It wasn't a leader, but you tried to solve your loneliness by engaging in a community in a church. You invested and you got hurt. You invested and you got harmed. That's another good reason to mistrust the church. And then often, the world is rejoicing and actually mocking the church in her failures. And it can be hard to want to attach ourselves to a community that is being mocked. To a community that is being exiled and pushed out. I understand that. Maybe you resonate with one of these reasons. Maybe you could even add one or two of your own. I thought of another one. Reason number four. The church just doesn't seem relevant. Maybe you're with me so far. Yes, I do battle and experience loneliness. That's a problem in my life. Maybe you're agreeing with me. But then I come here and I say, okay, so you're with me. You can't do life alone. We're all navigating this journey of loneliness together. And I say, hey, give the church a chance. And in your mind, in your heart, you're like, why would I do that? Sure, maybe I've got a problem like we all do with loneliness, but I'm not going to find the solution there. It's just not relevant. It's just not relevant. And if I'm describing you in deeply resonating with any of these reasons, and especially if you've already given a church, the church a chance and it's harmed you or hurt you, and I'm not naive, I know that that happens, I know that that happens with regularity, but if you've already given the church a chance, I know it's going to be hard for me to convince you to give it another chance. But I have to try. You can't do life alone, so why not give church a chance? Listen, I believe... This is one of the core tenets of my life. I believe that the local church, as God designed it, is the hope of the world. 
This is one of the core beliefs that I cling to in the storms of life. I believe that the local church, as God designed it, is the hope of the world. Now maybe you're a little bit confused by this because you expected me to say that Jesus is the hope of the world. Like, isn't that what pastors are supposed to say? That Jesus is the hope of the world. And of course, of course, I think and believe that Jesus is the hope of the world. But do you know why this is true as well? This is true as well because the church is the place where Jesus is continuing His work. Jesus leaves. He sends His Spirit. What did we just sing? And the church of Christ was born. It's Jesus' church. So He's still the hope of the world. But it's working itself out, right? One of the metaphors, one of the descriptions of the church in Scripture is what? It's the body of Christ. It's the body of Jesus. That is the local church on this earth. So the local church is the hope of the world. I believe that. The local church is the hope of the world. But, but as God designed it, right? As God designed it, that's the really key clause in this phrase. The local church as God designed it is the hope of the world. And yes, it's so true, isn't it? That the church often falls short of God's design. That's so true. But when it doesn't fall short, when the church doesn't fall short, when it actually reaches the heights of God's design, there is nothing else like a local church that's living into God's design for it. There is nothing more beautiful on this earth and a local church that is living into God's design for it. There's no more beautiful and unexplainable community than a local church that is living into God's design for it. Before I became a pastor, I was attending a church that did a Thanksgiving service every year around Thanksgiving, the holiday. And the design of the service was really simple. There was some musical worship. There was maybe a devotional from one of the pastors. And then they literally handed out a microphone to the congregation and just said, share your stories of thanksgiving of what God has done in your life. And I will never forget one of those thanksgiving services. There was a guy that closed it down. He just Nobody could go after him. And it was incredible. His name is John Clemens. None of you know John. I've known John basically my whole life. And John closed down this Thanksgiving service. And the thing about John in this moment is that just a few months earlier, not even a year, probably not even six months, just a few months earlier, John had just lost his wife to a really difficult and draining battle of cancer. And he had two kids that had some special developmental needs. And he lost his wife. And he was not standing up there thanking God for that. That would be cruel and nonsensical. That doesn't make any sense at all. That's incoherent. He was standing up there thanking the church, thanking his family, thanking the place that he belonged for caring for him and his family in the midst of that tragedy. He was on the worship team, and at one point he starts speaking to each member of the worship band, thanking them for the specific ways in which they helped his family. And he turns to the bass player, and he says, Dave... Dave, thank you for bailing water out of my flooded basement so that I didn't have to leave my wife's side. That's the local church living into her design. And when it does that, it's the hope of the world. It is unlike any other community. 
I get it. I know that the church doesn't always reach that height. I know that it has fallen short and that it has often caused a lot of pain. But at her best, the the church is a place to belong. At her best, the church is a place to call home. At her best, the church is a place to find a family. It's a place to find people who will bail water out of your flooded basement so that you can be present with your dying wife. And friends, the church at her best is a place where I believe that you can find success. You can find victory in your battle against loneliness. You can't do life alone. So why not give the church a chance? Now, maybe you're a little confused because earlier I said, hey, this is going to be about faith for exiles. And I haven't mentioned it at all. Right? We're like 15 minutes in. I haven't touched it. But if you're one of the like 20, 25 students that has a copy of this book, because I've been giving them out like candy, and if you've read, and if you've read the chapter 3, then you're tracking right with me. Because chapter 3 is all about this. This book is all about the practices of young people who have exhibited resilient faith. Those who have kept Jesus at the top of their priority list. Those who have resisted knocking Jesus down a few pegs or who have resisted taking Him off the list altogether. And like I said, Stephanie covered the first practice in this book a couple of weeks ago. These resilient followers of Jesus, they ground their identity in Him by cultivating daily intimacy with Him. And last Wednesday, Pastor Caleb shared about the second practice. In a complex and anxious age, develop muscles of cultural discernment. And today, as I've already said, it's chapter 3, it's practice 3, it's habit 3. We are journeying through this together. Here it is, practice 3. When isolation, when loneliness, when isolation and mistrust are the norms, forge meaningful intergenerational relationships. The book is arguing that resilient followers of Jesus, young people who are resilient followers of Jesus, they're arguing that they are doing this with regularity over and above peers that are also their age that are not resilient followers of Jesus. So this book is part of it's a study that they did, interviews and surveys, and listen to the conclusions of resilient disciples related to loneliness and isolation. Listen to this quote. Resilient disciples are far and away more relationally well-rounded than others their age. More than three-quarters say they have at least one close friend I trust with my secrets. When growing up, I had close personal friends who were adults, and I have someone in my life other than my family who I can go to for advice on personal issues. He goes on to say two-thirds of them said this, and over half said this, and this is how he closes the quote here at the very end. Flashes of loneliness don't sneak up on them as often as others when they are alone. Now, of course, it's possible to find meaningful relationships outside of the church. Of course, it's possible to find meaningful relationships outside of the church. I've done that. I've found meaningful relationships outside the church. I'm sure that you have as well. And the authors of this book are careful to acknowledge this as well, but I think they also paint a compelling picture for the possibility of forging meaningful relationships within the church, within the body of Christ. And what's more, I think they make a case for the possibility in the church of uh, building meaningful intergenerational relationships. Did you catch that word? Not just relationships, but intergenerational relationships. And it means just what it sounds like. 
Relationships with people who are older or younger with you. Relationships with people who are not of the same generation of you. It turns out in their research that those types of relationships are a key in the battle against loneliness. They're a key in the battle against loneliness, and that's because I believe this is true. You can't do life only with people that are exactly like you. You can't do life with only people who are exactly like you. Now, maybe this isn't technically true. I guess you could cultivate and organize your life this way, so let's shift it a little bit. I'll just say this. You shouldn't. You shouldn't only do life with people who look exactly like you. It's an unwise mistake. We may be naturally attracted to those who are just like us in age, race, background, interests, and more, but only developing those relationships is actually not what is best for you. A diversity of relationships in all sorts of different types of diversity is actually what's best for your life. It's actually what's best for you to be able to develop resilience and win the battle against loneliness. And this includes the the various ways that you could have diverse relationships, includes people who are older than you. And do you know where old people hang out? Church! How many of your grandmas go to church every single Sunday without missing? Okay, right? Like, old people are at church! And old people are valuable in terms of who you should build relationships with. Friends, when isolation and mistrust are norms towards meaningful intergenerational relationships, this is practice number three of those who are resilient in their faith and those who are resilient in life. There's this incredible moment, this unbelievable moment, very, 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 very near to the end of Jesus' life. It's coming. The end is coming for him, and he knows it. At this time, he's with his community. He's with his closest followers. He's with his best friends. He knows. Jesus knows that he is about to walk an incredibly lonely road. Jesus knows that Judas is about to betray him. Jesus knows that the disciples are going to run away so intensely that one of them, this is real, look it up, one of them loses their clothes because the soldiers are trying to grab them and they're like, I'm out of here. And their clothes fall off and they just keep running. That's the level to which Jesus' friends abandon him. Jesus knows that after that, Peter's going to like, no, I want to get back in. I want to get close. But then what is Peter going to do? He's going to deny Jesus three times. Jesus knows all of this. And if it was me, I'd be like, I'm done with you all. I'm about to go into my darkest hour and you all are going to abandon me. I'm going to have to walk this road alone. In his humanity, Jesus knew that. He was going to have to be alone in his humanity. Jesus knew. And yet, and yet, and yet, he still found it within himself to serve those who would abandon him. And yet, he still found it within himself to love those who would leave him. To pray for these fickle friends who would run away and leave him alone. And the prayer is recorded for our benefit in John chapter 17. We've got it. We have it right here, right now in this room. We know what Jesus prayed in these moments for his closest friends. And it's recorded there for our benefit. And as we close, I want to draw your attention to just two verses within this incredible prayer. All of it's incredible, but just two verses. We're going to start in verse 20. 
And it reads this way, I am praying not only for those, these disciples, his closest friends, I'm praying not only for these disciples, but I'm also praying for all who will ever believe in me through their message. Friends, what this means, do not miss it, what this means is that if you are a follower of Jesus, he prayed while he was on this earth directly for you. He prayed for you because you believe because they did something with this message. And then the next people did something with this message. And then the people after that did something with this message. And at some point, the message of Jesus got to you and you believed in it. All who believe as a result of their message, Jesus prayed for you. He prayed for me. And equally incredible is what He prays for us. Continue following along with me, verse 21. I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us, so that the world will believe you sent me. Don't miss this. Jesus prays for those of us who follow him to be united to one another as he and the Father are one. Friends, this is remarkable. This is remarkable because the unity between the Son and the Father is unparalleled. The unity between the Son and the Father is unmatched. This is just completely stunning. It's perfect in every single way. And Jesus prays that we as a church would have unity like that. He prays that our community, that our family, that our belonging would be like theirs. He prays for this because He knows that He's leaving His mission up to the church. He prays for this because He knows that when she lives fully into her design, she will be the hope of the world. The hope of the world. And when the church gets this right, which again, I know it doesn't happen all the time, but when the church gets this right, look at what happens as a result. The end of verse 21, one more time. Jesus prays that we will be unified as He and the Father are unified. Why? So that so that the world will believe you sent me. Do not miss the gravity of that statement. Do not miss the weight of that statement. The world will know Jesus is God come to heaven to save us if the church is a place where you can actually belong no matter who you are. The world will know that Jesus is who He said He was if the church is a place where you can find a family. That will happen if the church is a place where you can find meaningful relationships that enrich your life with people who don't look like you. The world will know that Jesus is king of the entire universe if the church is a place where genuine unity is not just preached, but it's practiced. If the church is a place where lonely people can find a home. Where lonely people, where lonely people, which remember, that's all of us, the world will know that Jesus is who He said He was if the church is the place where lonely people can find a home. You can't do life alone. So why not give the church a chance? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank You for these students. Thank You for wherever they're at, Lord. I, I pray that You would meet them, that we would meet them, that I would meet them where they're at. No matter where they're at in their journeys, Lord, of relational belonging or loneliness, help them, minister to them, Wrap them up in a big hug and remind them that you are with them, that you will never leave them or forsake them, that you go before them and behind them and around them and you are within them, God. And we are with them. We're a family here at Sterling College and this is a place where we should be able to belong. 
We love you, Jesus. Thank you for the example you set of how to create and cultivate meaningful relationships and then how to, how to be resilient in the midst of loneliness. Thank you for, for your example, Jesus, and thank you that you died for our sins. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.